Pastor John here. Thanks for joining us. We're returning to our series in Luke today, God's Love for Everyone. Our sermon for today is The Problem with Perfection. That'll be out of Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. We'd love to hear from you. There'll be several ways you can get in touch with us right after the end of the service. So if you have prayer requests or any comments, you'll be able to contact us directly. Let's go to our service now, which is already in progress. In this morning's sermon, we see the Pharisees and the religious leaders once again missing the miracle and the blessing by ignoring what Jesus does in order to focus on the finer points of the law. Jesus addresses the same issue in the Gospel of Matthew, reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." Please be seated. Yeah, Luke chapter 13. And as I was saying, when, when I got up this morning, it was 60 degrees outside and immediately started thinking about summertime. And that made me think about the summer that I was 12 years old. I, I used to build model cars. You go over to my office right now, you'll see I've got little cars in there. They've been a passion all my life. I used to build these model cars. And when I was 12, my dad was buying all my models, and I said, hey, Dad, can we go to this, go up to the plaza and get a model? And he said, no. What's the problem? And he said, I'm not going to buy any more of your models. I was devastated. I said, well, what am I going to do? So my dad took me out to the garage and gave me a lawnmower. It was one of those push lawnmowers. No, vroom, 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 you know, it was push. And, and he gave me a couple of tools, and he gave me a bucket and uh, some sponges, and then he took me in the driveway and showed me how to wash his car. And I'd been mowing the lawn at the house for a couple of years. And he said, now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the neighbors and ask them if you want to mow their lawn, and you'll do it for $2. And ask them if they want their car washed, you do that for $3. Well, back at the time, that was fairly decent money for mowing your lawn and doing a car. And so I thought, well, I can do that. And I started going up and down the street and asking the neighbors. And I got one or two folks that wanted their lawns mowed and three or four that wanted their cars washed. And I started making my own money. And so it, and that worked out pretty good because a model back then was like $2.50. And, you know, the first week I had enough to buy five or six models. As a matter of fact, that's what I did. I went out and bought, spent all my money on models. And, and I went to my dad and I said, thanks, dad. Thanks for showing me how I can get models. And my dad said something I just never forgot. He said, someday you'll know what I really showed you. And so I, I, it didn't occur to me back then, but now I know that there was a deeper lesson in what my father was trying to show me. It took me a while to figure it out. You know, the, the Bible's the same way. 
I, I mean, you know, we can read through the Bible. We can find out what's there on the surface. We can say, oh, gee, this is good. Oh, that's bad, so on and so forth. But if, if, if we learn to read our Bibles in context, and, you know, context is everything, we can find that there are a lot deeper lessons in each passage in the Bible than maybe we imagined. If we're just willing to spend some time taking a look at it today. So that's our truth for today. There's always a deeper lesson. There's always a deeper lesson. Now, last time we got together, we found out that repentance is required and that we have to exhibit a, a clear, heartfelt, contrite repentance, a conscious turning away from our sins, turning toward, it's not just, repentance isn't just turning away from sin. It's turning away from sin and towards the righteousness of Christ. So we, we consciously pursue, we strive for the righteousness of Christ. And we have to do that if we're going to experience life in full in the kingdom of God. If we're going to experience the fullness of God's blessing, all the benefits of being one of his children, if we're going to experience the perfection of his plan of redemption for everybody. So... Matter of fact, we're going to talk about perfection today. And this is something that's near and dear to many of us. Uh, the title of our sermon today is the, the Problem with Perfection. So our passage works out in two vignettes. Uh, one vignette that works itself out in two acts. Uh, the first act, we're going to see this perfection that we're talking about. That's going to be in verses 10 through 13. And the second act, we'll see the problem with perfection. That's in 14 through 17. So the context, and we need to keep this in mind as we go through this passage, the context is that Jesus has just compared Israel to a barren fig tree. Now, we're not moving from one subject to another. Jesus continues to teach, and he continues to keep teaching upon teaching. So he's called Israel this barren fig tree, one that produces no fruit. And in, in the parable, the, the gardener went to the, the owner of the field and bought some time for the barren fig tree. And so there's some grace that we saw in there, but there's obviously a limited amount of time for this fig tree. It's not going to go on forever. So God expects fruit. Now, the big question for the day is, what does that fruit look like? And, you know, we, we make the mistake of thinking that the fruit is the same for everybody. And when we talk about fruit in the kingdom of God, generally what we're talking about, what we think, is evangelism. How many people have I witnessed to? How many disciples have I made? So on and so forth. Well, fruit comes in a lot of different flavors, amen? Okay, and so fruit can be many things to many people, but there's one concept that we're going to learn today about fruit that applies to all of us. So let's take a look at this act number one, perfection, starting with verse 10. Now, he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, I want you to notice two things here. The first one is the location. He's at the synagogue. I think about this for a second. Jesus is headed for Jerusalem. He knows what is waiting for him there. It has been a hard three years. Yes, he's had, he's had crowds following him and people adoring him and everything, but he knows that not everybody is really getting everything that what he's saying. 
So he's headed to Jerusalem. He knows that the cross is in Jerusalem. He's experienced this tension between him and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the priests. Everybody is going at odds against him. He's trying to disciple his disciples, and they seem a little dense at times. They're not really getting it. Peter's always saying, don't worry, I've got this, and then everything gets messed up. And, and he's trying to do all these things, prepare himself for torture unlike anything anyone has ever gone through before, and Jesus still has time for church. Now, I'm talking to the choir here because you're here, okay? But, you know, we live in a time where it, uh, apply some of the standards we see today to Jesus Christ. He said, you know, I walked 100 miles in the last week, which was probably true. And it's been hard, and people aren't really hearing me. They're not really understanding me. And, and I, I've, I've got an ordeal ahead of me. I think I'm going to take the day off and rest. If there's anything we found out about Jesus is that the busier he got, the more time he devoted to prayer and being with the Father. So regardless of what's going on in Jesus' life, he shows up at synagogue. Well, it's not church. Well, it was for him. So he's there. Second thing I want you to remember is that he has just accused Israel of being barren. And this incident here is directly related to those statements. And I'm going to show you how. Verse 11 says, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Now, the Greek here infers that she's weakened. And to the point that she is totally unable to do much of anything. And because of this weakening spirit, because of the duration of her sickness, the, the woman would be excluded. She wouldn't be allowed to go to the temple. But she was allowed to go to synagogue. She's a good, she's a devout Jew. So she goes to synagogue, and she happens to be there on the day that Jesus is there. Now, this in itself for this woman is a brave and bold act. The synagogue was a very public venue. It was kind of like the community gathering place. Everybody would be there on Shabbat and in a culture that had a tendency to minimize the presence of women in public. This woman has two strikes against her. Number one, she's a woman. And number two, she's disabled. Needless to say, a lot of people would view her as being cursed by God. That's how they saw that. We're familiar enough with the Jewish culture to know that they would look upon her and think that she's done something wrong and has earned the disfavor of God. And even more than that, there, there, there's an undercurrent in this passage that this might be just a little bit demonic. Not that she's demonic. Uh, yeah, you know, we've seen Jesus handle demons in other areas of scripture. He speaks directly to them. None of that stuff happens here. But there's some sort of spiritual attack going on in this woman. And the woman is suffering. The scripture says she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. She can't heal herself. She can barely walk. And after 18 years of being disabled, the community most likely had begun to dismiss her. She's been around for a long time. The situation never gets better. She's become a non-person. 
One of those people that, that those less polite members of the community would point to and whisper. You know, and you, you know what the whisper is? There must be something wrong with her. God is unhappy with her. If she were a good, God-fearing person, God would fix her. And that's not happening. So watch what Jesus does. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, we see that Jesus notices her. He looks at her. He sees her. Not only does he acknowledge her presence, but, but he calls out to her. He summons her. And she walks over. Now, the whole synagogue filled with the community around it at that point holds their breath. What is going on? Now, we're not there. Scripture doesn't say it. But you can imagine what this looked like. What is Jesus doing? And the man who had just accused the religious leaders of being near worthless in the eyes of God calls out to the town recluse and calls her over. This woman who had cried out to God, this woman that everybody in the community had probably at some point prayed for, this woman that everybody had just as likely given up on, Jesus calls out to her. Just come on over here. And says in front of everyone and directly to her, you're free. You're free. The NIV says, he said, woman, you are free from your infirmity. It's an incredible moment. He just says it. And you know that there, there's this brief pause while everybody goes, what now? What now? Okay. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Now, the very obvious miracle here is that this woman is made whole. She is immediately healed. She is completely healed. Notice Jesus proclaims her healing. That's all he needed to do. But he wants the people around him to see the power of the presence of God, so he touches her. He lays his hands on her to demonstrate that his proclamation was accurate and true. It's an amazing moment. And furthermore, as he does all this, the woman stands up straight for the first time in 18 years. And she gives, what does she do? She gives God the glory. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus who we know is perfect. They didn't know that. We know that. Gives her a perfect healing, and she gives glory to God. Now, there's a key here. And this would be an easy thing to pass over if we weren't looking at the full context and looking for the deeper meaning here. We think carefully about what just happened. I said the healing was perfect. Why was the healing perfect? Because God gets the credit. Because God gets the glory. She doesn't say glory to Jesus. She says glory to God. Now, I, I don't think some people would say, oh, she realized that Jesus and God were the same person. I don't think the woman was thinking that theologically. 
And that certainly wasn't something that Jesus had been teaching in that synagogue. I don't believe she's saying Jesus and God are one. However, I do believe that this crippled woman who is now standing straight, who believed in the one true God, knows that God sent this man to heal her. So she gives God the glory. Now, you and I know a little bit more about this subject than we might think. Because we know that the Gospel of John in chapter 15 says this, starting in verse 5. Jesus is preaching to the people around him. And he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Fruit. Hmm. For apart from time, you, from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, Jesus mentions fruit twice. In that lesson. And we find out that Jesus came to bring glory to the Father. And in John, he links bearing fruit to bringing glory to God. Let's put all this together with the preceding passage. Where Jesus accuses Israel of not bearing fruit. Of being a barren fig tree. And immediately after that accusation, he shows all the people around him what bearing fruit for the Father looks like. And he does it by healing this woman perfectly, but the fruit is not just the healing. That's what we have to see here. It goes beyond the healing. Of course Jesus can heal. Of course God's presence can bring healing. It's a miracle that we can't deny. But the real fruit is in bringing glory to the Father. God gets the glory and the honor, and that's what makes the healing perfect. God gets the honor. God gets the glory. Now, you would think that that level of perfection would satisfy everybody, be appreciated by most of the folks, particularly the leaders. You would think that the leaders, being the sophisticated men that they are, would be able to connect the dots, that they would look at each other and go, hey, wait a minute. He just said we should bear fruit. Then he does this thing, and it brings glory to God. Do you think that being fruitful is bringing glory to God? Is that what he's trying to say to us? Isn't that what we just saw? That's what happened in the passage. Fruit in our lives is, is living in a manner that brings glory to the Father. Now, we need to think about this because we have a tendency to minimize what fruit is. It's the number of people we've witnessed to. It's the number of people, uh, you know, I, I was asked to be a deacon at a church one time. And the first question that they had on my little questionnaire on whether or not I qualified to be a deacon was how many people I had led to Christ. That's a great question. But it's like that's the only fruit. And the church can be guilty of thinking that that's the only fruit out there. 
Yeah, we put the emphasis on the gospel, we put the emphasis on sharing and everything, but here we find out that fruit isn't any particular thing we do, it's the way we live. We live in a manner that points towards our Father in heaven. We live in, in a style that our behavior reflects our Savior. That's fruit for the kingdom. Everything we do points towards our Father. That's fruit. So that means that whatever your gift is, if it's not evangelism, if, if your gift is cleaning the kitchen or cooking or praying for somebody or just spending time with them or being an encourager or anything that you do, that you do for the glory of God is fruit. Now that takes some of the pressure off. We all got to go down to Eva Walker Park. You know, all we got to do is send the evangelists down there. Everybody else is producing fruit in a different way. Fruit is the way we live. It is linked to what we do, but what we do should impact the way we live, which points towards a change in us. Glory to the Father. So that lesson was perfect. The healing was perfect, but not everybody thought so. Some have a problem with perfection. Watch what happens here. This is Act 2, verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue, now, the ruler of the synagogue, his job is to maintain the synagogue and, and organize the worship service. So the responsibility would fall to him if something went wrong. He knows all the laws, he knows all the rules. Everything that would govern a service, he knows if something has been out of order, he's got his policy and procedure book, and he's memorized it inside out. He gets all this. There are rules to follow, and we have to follow the rules. And now there's nothing wrong with that. We need to understand that we need structure. We need to understand how things are supposed to go. But when the structure becomes more important than the people, we have a problem. Now here at WBF, we tried to emphasize the importance of the people over the program. And I think that's healthy. Let's see what the ruler of the synagogue thought about all this. So we find out that he was, the scripture says, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now there's a lot in there. Don't be healed by him, come and be healed by us, but come on the right day. But the fact of the matter is, he's upset. And he's got a good reason to be upset. He's talking about Exodus chapter 20, starting with verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So legally, the ruler of the synagogue is standing on pretty solid ground. But Jesus seldom relies solely 
upon the law. It's another thing we've learned about his ministry. It's not all about the law. He frequently examines what the behavior of those around him reveals in their heart. So, the ruler of the synagogue is mad. He's upset. Shouldn't do that today. It's the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus says, verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Jesus says, you condemn working on the Sabbath for others while you routinely do it yourselves. You take care of your animals. You're so minute on these rules and everything, and you're not following them. Then he says this, and ought not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Whoa. It's a reminder that this woman is a sister in the faith. Maybe it's a little bit of a nudge from Jesus saying, you haven't been treating her that way just because she's different, have you? You haven't set her aside, tell her to come back later. Matter of fact, you should be celebrating that she's set free on the one day that the entire community is focused on God. Furthermore, he's saying, you're so wrapped up in your rules and regulations that you're missing the work of God right in your midst. Can we ever miss the work of God? because of some preconceptions we have about how he might move? Have we ever dictated the rules and regulations to God and then looked at someone else and said that you don't live within those guidelines, I don't think you're godly? That's what these guys are doing. The people saw, the people around there saw, Verse 17, as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced in, at all the glorious things that were done by him. They saw, they, they saw at, at least they saw for a little while. I don't know if they saw everything, but at least they saw that, the hypocrisy of the leaders to say there are things you can do and things you can't do. Don't look at us. Look at my policies and procedures. So we have one vignette, one story and two acts. We've seen this perfection. Uh, The leaders demanded, and this is really what happened here. The leaders demanded perfection and failed to realize that they themselves were imperfect. They failed to examine themselves while they were so busy examining the people around them. And we've seen this problem, that when the perfection that they were looking for finally shows up and stands in front of them, they refuse them. They reject them. When he says, hold yourself to the same standards you would hold other people to, they just accuse him of breaking the law. So there are lessons to be seen here, and and, and they're good lessons. 
And, and there, there are many of them. I'm going to give you some of them. You might have some more. If you have some more lessons that you've learned from here, send me a note. I'd like to hear them. Because there's a ton of lessons here. The first one is Jesus heals. Amen? Jesus heals. I don't think he stopped healing. I, I think God can do anything he wants to do. So Jesus heals. Uh, here's another one. Jesus has authority over demons. Amen? I mean, he's demonstrated that over and over again. He has authority over everything. Here's another one. We should examine our lives to see if we're hypocritical. The religious leaders should have examined themselves, should have avoided saying one thing and doing another. That's a good one. Here's one that might not be so popular, but it's true. The law, the law is a good thing. You know, I taught on the law several years ago, and some people got upset. Oh, we're not under the law. We are. You know, when you understand that the law is not there to condemn us, the law reveals the character and nature of the God that we worship. It's a good thing. It allows us to, to measure how we're coming in our sanctification. Not that we can lose the sanctification or our salvation, but how important is God in our lives? A good measure is how well are we obeying the law. The law is a good thing, but it should never be used to control others or as some kind of measuring stick to evaluate the, the holiness or the Christianity of others. None of us are perfect. So any law, listen carefully, brothers and sisters, any law that lacks grace and mercy is nothing more than legalism. That's what the, the religious leaders showed us. Those are all good lessons. But the deeper lesson here comes from the context. There's always a deeper lesson. And we can see at beginning of chapter 13, we see the necessity to repent. To repent of what? For the Jewish leaders, it was to repent from not bearing fruit. And now, in this passage, we see that the fruit that they lack is living for the glory of God. I mean, every time Jesus has an encounter with these people, they reveal more and more about their heart. They're not giving God his due. The fact of the matter was that the religious leaders were living for themselves. They had self-centered lives that caused them to live for their own glory. Meanwhile, they're expecting perfection from other people. Jesus shows up, puts that perfection they're expecting on display, giving glory to God every step of the way, and they reject him. See, that's, that's the problem with perfection. Most people reject it, true godly perfection. Most people would rather define protect, perfection on their own terms and then impose that perfection on the people around them. It's not a godly perfection. It's a man-generated perfection. They don't really want perfection if we understand what's happening. What they want is control. 
They want control. They want influence. They want authority. And they are willing to defy God to get it. These men just watched that woman stand up straight and accused Jesus rather than giving glory to God. They missed it. The deeper lesson that my dad wanted me to learn in giving me a lawnmower and a bucket was that you have to work hard for the things that you want. That was a good lesson. The deeper lesson that Jesus is teaching these leaders is that they're barren. And the remedy that they needed in order to produce the fruit that God expected from them was standing in front of them. Jesus Christ. John gave us the key in his gospel, didn't it? We read it. If we abide in him and he in us, this brings glory to God. And that's the fruit that God expects from us. It might be the deepest lesson that any of us have to learn in the Bible. I'm just going to sing one verse of Be Thou My Vision. Our dedication and an immediate application to the sermon we've just heard. Would you please stand? Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. And say, Lord, be our vision. Be the first and the last thing that we see. Lord, be, be king of my heart. Be my king, my savior, the ruler of all that I am, everything inside me. I surrender to you. Lord, be my everything. Permeate all that I say and all that I do. Be the occupation of my mind from the moment I get up to the moment I lay my head on my pillow at the end of the day. Be my light and be my guide at all times. Lord, we trust you. You're faithful and true. And Lord, we pray that we would live in a manner that brings fruit into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us online today. Pastor John here again to tell you that we really appreciate your spending some time with us. Love to hear from you. You can email me personally with your prayer requests or comments at kavakas, K-U-V-A-K-A-S, at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube at WBFVA. We're also on Facebook at Morton Bible Fellowship. And we have a worldwide website as well, WBFVA.org. I hope today blessed you. I hope you have a blessed week. God bless you. We hope to see you again.